From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Remote Aboriginal communities across Australia reacted swiftly and effectively to the COVID-19 outbreak. Their response reflects the disproportionate burden these communities often carry when it comes to infectious disease. Today, Amy Maguire on the pandemic and self-determination. Amy, you've been speaking to people managing the response to COVID-19 in remote communities. Could you start by telling me about the experience of infectious disease in Indigenous communities since colonisation? Yeah, so from basically the first um, fleet who came in, so the first time boats came to these shores, Aboriginal people had to deal with introduced diseases. Back then, the infectious diseases were things like smallpox, and there's still a lot of conjecture today around whether that was introduced deliberately, but it had the effect of killing many, many Aboriginal people. Amy Maguire wrote about the COVID-19 response in remote communities for the Saturday paper. But obviously there's been other um, epidemics and diseases that have devastated Aboriginal communities, the most notable of which was the Spanish flu in 1919, which devastated Australia as a whole, but particularly Aboriginal people where some communities had up to like a 50% mortality rate. Out of the 600 people who lived here at Barambra at the time, according to the government medical reports, there was only 10 fit people. Because the flu had affected 590 of the 600. We've had other more recent pandemics like swine flu in 2009, in which Aboriginal people have made up about 11% of cases in Australia. Health officials confirmed a 26-year-old man from a remote community in WA as Australia's first swine flu victim. Health workers say the death magnifies the huge gap in health standards between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. So we know that when it comes to infectious diseases, Aboriginal people are disproportionately affected. Not a lot of Australians know this history, but Aboriginal people know this history and we remember this history. And talk to me a bit about discrimination, like the the tangible ways that Indigenous people are discriminated against that means that they have historically borne this disproportionate burden when it comes to infectious disease. So there's a whole host of reasons why we're disproportionately impacted by issues like COVID-19. They're not unsolvable issues, but they're particularly highlighted in the current situation we're facing around COVID-19 and the pandemic. And we know that um, we aren't all equal in this. There are reasons why um, Aboriginal people are potentially going to be harder hit. We are left with higher rates of chronic disease, higher mortality, and particularly a lack of access to health services. But it's not just in relation to health. For example, housing is a huge one. We have higher rates of overcrowding and also higher rates of homelessness. How do you socially isolate in an overcrowded house? So at the start of this outbreak, while governments were debating their response to COVID-19, What was happening in remote communities? Around February, March, a lot of communities just started closing down. They didn't wait for government. They said, no, we're locking down our borders. We're not going to let this get in. Communities and local councils have taken it upon themselves to implement protective measures, with Cape York self-imposing a coronavirus lockdown to protect its most vulnerable communities. So by the time the government was actually putting in place restrictions on visiting remote Indigenous communities under the Biosecurity Act, a lot of mob had already done it, not only their water restrictions, but also their local action plans about what would happen if COVID-19 actually got in. 
you know, the mob out in APY lands were the first, WA communities, the land councils, they've all done their part. Um, and Dr. Mark Wenatong from Akunapima Cape York Health Council actually said, you know, particularly in, in his region in the Cape, it was the best um, evidence-based public health response he'd seen, um, even better than government. Very, very quick response by lots of our communities and well before um, the Biosecurity Act kind of came into being. So just got in faster than um, than others and most of the mainstream public health, um, including at a national and state policy level. So. Um, smart responses, I think, by our communities and um, well supported by our community-controlled health organisations. It's very interesting to look at the way Aboriginal leadership and communities and the health sector have actually been able to deal in a crisis and it really shows what can happen when Aboriginal mob are in control. We'll be back in a moment. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Amy, we're talking about the response by Aboriginal community-controlled organisations to the COVID-19 outbreak. Can you talk to me about some of the strengths that these organisations have when it comes to protecting their own communities? Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the main strengths is that the um, mob working in Aboriginal community-controlled health sector know their communities, they know their people, and they have lived experience of these issues. The really interesting thing about, you know, comprehensive primary health care is that you're not just looking at it as an issue of medical care. You're looking at it as a whole. So you're looking at um, not just what is bringing the person to the clinician today. You're looking at all of the issues around it, the socioeconomic issues and determinants as well. So because of this, Aboriginal Community Controlled Healthcare is actually uniquely set up to deal with helping protect communities from COVID-19 or all the issues that are going to come up around COVID-19. By the time Australia got its first coronavirus case, for example, at Puna Puma Cape York Health Council, which represents about 11 Cape York um, communities delivers service to them, had started actually doing their public health messages. Um, currently, once again, thankfully, we have no confirmed cases in the Cape or Torres of um, coronavirus infections. Um, we are ramping up our testing now, so we may find um, in the future that we do have people. So it's really, really important that we don't take our foot off the pedal now. And if you look on any Facebook or social media site of AMSs or land councils around the country, see all of these amazing health promotion messages. I'll give an example of the Northern Land Council, who's not, it's not their role to deliver public health messaging. They actually translated COVID-19 messaging into 18 different languages very, very quickly. So that's being disseminated across social media and getting straight to Aboriginal communities on the ground. Keeping but us strong, but the coronavirus is very dangerous and we got to listen and follow by rules. Prime Minister... 
I spoke to Pat Turner, who's the head of the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, and she actually highlighted the critical importance of the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health sector. If this virus gets into Aboriginal communities, it will be absolute devastation. She told me that they've been out there for months and have been better prepared than the state health systems, but they're doing it all on the smell of an oily rag. They have no funds to do this. And my sector has acted promptly and we continue to work with the Commonwealth Federal Department, who themselves have been very good, but we need the resources and we need the equipment. Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisations were only given $15 million to specifically deal with COVID-19 responses. You know, they're out there, they have the skills, but they're not being funded. They don't have the infrastructure to actually do this. So you've outlined the benefits of communities self-quarantining like this. Are there any problems that arise with this approach? There's so many challenges. Just over the past couple of weeks, there's been an issue that's arisen around food security in remote communities. So there are anecdotal reports of um, families having to leave their communities and drive along the back roads to um, regional centres because either they can't afford the food out in the community, there's just not access to proper food out there. So there's real food security issues at the moment. Um, And also just the fact, you know, our mob have higher rates of chronic disease. So also the ability to continue to provide that primary health care in a time of crisis and particularly to remote communities um, is still an ongoing issue. So it's not over yet. And, you know, it's important that mobs still stay vigilant, um, but also that what is happening in the sector at the moment is recognised. Amy, the response to the crisis that you've outlined seems to show the benefits of self-determination. Can you talk to me a bit more about that and um, and your ideas around, you know, whether you see this as, as a blueprint for other issues that affect the lives of Aboriginal people living in these communities? Yeah, I mean, the Australian government is supposed to have a policy of self-determination for about 40 years now, but we haven't seen that in practice. So self-determination, um, but for me particularly sovereignty, is about... Um, control over our own lives. Um, So I think what COVID-19 is showing us is that we're capable and we have the strength and we have the knowledge and we have the expertise in these communities already in order to run our own lives. The other thing I think it really shows is leadership. Ever since the um, abolition of ATSIC, there's been this belief that blackfellas don't have strong leadership and we've never been really given a chance to show that. This isn't just a saving the blacks narrative. It's not about who's going to protect poor black communities. We can protect ourselves and that needs to be acknowledged. It's not just our own communities, it's our country and it's our people. And that's really important because ever since the first smallpox epidemic in our communities from broad and cross from the first fleet, there has been attempts to completely wipe us from this country and we know the reason behind that. So for us, this isn't just our health. This is about saying that, you know, we are sovereign people. We exist on this land. I hope it really shows that, you know, mob in this land, in this country, know um, how we can best protect ourselves and that self-determination in action. And we're not waiting around. We're, We're doing it. Amy, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup made in collaboration with Fresco for free. 
Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Also in the news, New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has announced that COVID-19 is currently eliminated from the country. Ardern said there was no widespread undetected community transmission in New Zealand and the country had recorded fewer than 10 new infections every day for the past week. The news comes as the country yesterday eased some of its tough lockdown measures with some non-essential businesses reopening. In New South Wales, Premier Gladys Berejiklian is also set to ease COVID-19 restrictions in stages, with rollbacks to be announced twice a month. Chief Medical Officer Brendan Murphy announced that he expected more than 2 million Australians to have downloaded the federal government's coronavirus contact tracing app by this morning. Health Minister Greg Hunt earlier revealed that the app had been downloaded more than 1 million times in the 12 hours since it was released on Sunday night. And in the US, New York has begun COVID-19 antibody tests for frontline healthcare workers. The screening program will examine whether doctors and nurses working with infected patients have been contracting COVID-19 without showing any symptoms. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.